Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is UXK. 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 I'm your host, Lee Allen Arredondo. This episode, we are re-editing and republishing a very early episode, episode number three, about creating more effective teams. It's one of my favorite episodes when I talked with David and Mary Sherwin, the duo behind Ask the Sherwins, about how we are so much more effective in UX when we have great collaboration across teams. I think this was one of my favorite episodes, partially because David and Mary are so fun to talk to, but also because I feel so strongly about this subject. It is such an important and essential aspect of product development, and so many organizations and teams just don't do it well. David and Mary bring a lot of insight to not only why teams and orgs aren't collaborating, but also what any of us can do to get more collaborative. David and Mary are experts at helping teams work better. They describe it as helping teams make better cakes, which of course I love. They advise companies and teach workshops about this around the globe. And they have a new book coming out called Turning People into Teams, which I'm excited to say I'll be talking with them about in an upcoming episode. Okay, let's hear from the Sherwins. All right. Thanks, David and Mary, so much for joining me on UX Cake. You're very welcome. It's great to be here. Happy to be here. Yeah, I have been so looking forward to this. Before we dive into the conversation about collaborative teams and cross-functional teams, I'd love to hear a little background on the your Ask the Sherwins company. And I'm going to start with the obvious here. Cake? You guys say you help teams make better cake. And since I like cake, especially UX cake, I am very curious for you to tell me a little bit more about that. Oh, okay. So the cake, this is something we sort of came up with where we realized that when people were talking about what made an ideal team situation or an ideal product or an ideal service, that it was very vague. It was kind of like, you know, you could just put a textbook on agile on your forehead and, you know, through osmosis, it would just become part of your brain. And we had this way of thinking about it, about when people talk to other teams, that it seems very magical. Like, oh, we were really struggling. And then we did this one crazy thing. And then suddenly we were a magical powerhouse team of unicorns and unicorn herders. And it was amazing. But you can't throw everything into an oven and just magically expect it to be cake. Cake doesn't work that way. And it's really about active intention and treating each ingredient, whether it's a person or a process, treating them with care and kindness and to really consider how all of the things come together individually before you worry about, you know, even putting frosting on the cake. So that's kind of where the the cake thing came from. We like to say that we help teams make better cake. And it's a good shorthand to be like, you know, we're this is a very serious process and making cake is a fantastic thing. But at the same time, it's a little fun and it's about nourishing a team on a different level. Yeah, I like that. I love that attention to the individual ingredients as making up, you know, something that's more than just a bunch of ingredients, right? 
So let's move into, we're talking about collaboration. And I have to say, I think you guys and I have been working in this industry for probably about as long as each other. And I just can't believe that we still have the kinds of problems that we were having back in 1998 in companies where the functional teams are in silos. And we've got PMs and devs and design and research, they aren't always talking to each other, sometimes don't even know what each other is doing. I feel like it's general knowledge that better collaboration creates better products. And so what's going wrong? I think one of the things we see regularly is all the right information exists within the organization, but people haven't figured out how to create symmetry with the right type of information to get it to the place where it needs to be in terms of making a product or service. So a lot of the work that we've been doing has not just been like helping designers gain skills that help in sort of hands-on making things. It's also figuring out like where to push and pull the information from the right folks across an organization and also knowing when they should be part of the design process and having them be incorporated into it. And I agree with you. A lot of the challenges we're seeing are consistent with what we saw 15 to 20 years ago, but the complexity of the products and services that we're working on keeps getting bigger and bigger. And so the designers and the design leaders we're working with, they're always having to like intentionally build and manage this network of relationships to get at that information and translate it into really good design. So I think the problems are similar, but they just kind of grow in orders of magnitude. And we have to develop new tools and strategies to help people in these organizations like continue to get the information in the right places to make those things that allow for these products. And you're also, I think, still dealing with, I mean, one of the issues that's been around forever, which is how much knowledge you have about somebody else's job and how protective people get around their own job function. And I think what happens is that we've especially noticed this over the past, you know, even the past five years, the push that everybody can be a designer. And even if you're a UX practitioner, just putting UX in front of designer, you're still saying design. And there's a, everyone can be a designer, design is for everyone. It's difficult to separate knowledge of the field, knowledge of the practice from actual application of the practice. So I think as projects become more complex, you have all of these different players in the field who knowledge of their practice is what they're bringing. And the application of that knowledge is how they are able to stay in the room once they get there. So I think it's like, we need to know what other people are doing. We need to talk about what you do and what I do and what he does and what she does. We need to be able to talk about it without feeling like I need to learn what you do so I can do your job. That seems very straightforward, but there's a lot of land grabbing for no real reason because people are are conflating knowing about something with the ability to actually do something. I feel like everything we have has some sort of food analogy or metaphor. We talk about, you know, being a chef or being, uh, you know, cooking in a kitchen, you know, just because I know how to use a knife does not mean that I can use a knife and earn my living from it. And there is no cook in the world that is threatened by my ability to chop carrots in my kitchen. Like, that's just not going to happen. Yeah. And another analogy of too many chefs in the kitchen comes to mind. And I wonder if kind of 
along the lines of what you were saying, where people get really protective of their position and their job, and you know they don't want to give over control, and maybe they're afraid of allowing too many cooks in the kitchen or whatever. But it sounds like something that I've seen for sure, where, like you said, there are everybody's a designer, except they're not. But where I mean, it's great when everyone wants to contribute to the design process, but it's not great then when they are cutting the design professionals out of the picture or just not including them in the conversations, which is what often happens. Exactly. And I think what we encounter a lot with teams is that there's not a lot of visibility into the impact of the decisions that people make. So, you know, we run into a a lot of teams that lament over the, oh, we just throw it over the wall. You know, we work for it on it for a little while and we throw it over the wall and, you know, then they come back and we hear them gripe about it, but, you know, then they come back with something great and it's fine. Is that there's not a lot of conversation between the different silos about the effect that our decisions have on them, not just in terms of, oh, is this technically feasible? How does this relate to the backlog? What's our timeline? How many things do we need to move up or not? But in terms of, you know, personnel impact, which decisions have to be made, which problems now get solved versus which problems don't get solved. And we don't have those meetings between people to be like, okay, when you decide on something very simple, which is a very simple for decision for you, there's this cascade effect of, you know, positive and negative things. But we don't have that visibility, you know, it's like so many people, we just don't have time for that. So we make a lot of, frankly, some boneheaded decisions because we don't hear the good impact. We only hear if we've messed up and somebody screwed up their timeline because of it and vice versa. You know, it's not just us making boneheaded decisions. Everybody does it, but we don't have visibility into where we have impact and where those things bubble up. So let's say that a team has identified this lack of collaboration and the problems that causes and wants to develop better collaboration with other teams, but then gets resistance from other teams. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but... (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So like every project. Yeah. So when organizational change isn't coming from the top, how can teams or individuals within those teams create change more, you know, laterally? Well, I would say not laterally, but bottoms up or bottom from the team up. I'd say the majority of the work that we do is when we're coaching design managers or C-level people is saying, we know there's organizational changes you need to make around like your product strategy and how that influences the way your team is structured. But have you considered whether you involve teams in how they want to make those changes? They might feel more ownership over transitioning to that new structure and figuring out how that structure is going to help them do their jobs better or In many cases, if your job's going to change, you have in control over what you make of it. Those are the types of dialogues that we have. And we help, I guess we take design techniques that we often see that we use on making products. And we bring those into the thinking about organizational design and the making of teams. So folks that are individual contributors or working in these cross-functional teams feel like they have a little bit of control over where they're headed, or at least if things don't always go exactly how they wanted it, they had input. They're able to sort of be aligned with their leadership about why they're going to accept certain changes that may not be optimal, but they're what's needed for the business. And are there things that individuals or an individual team can do that you've seen to be successful, you know, when they haven't necessarily, the leadership hasn't bought on 
or bought in quite yet. You know, like how can people try to affect change when they're having trouble getting traction? So I think we'd have to get into practical examples, like say that you've got a team that's sort of you know, like this is pretty common, but say you've got a cross-functional team, they're working on a piece of software and they're just really struggling to ship something. And leadership is concerned that they might need to sort of change how the team's working. I think in those types of situations, it usually, if you spend time with the team and you understand how they're working, you see that they're probably not sharing feedback with each other about really common things. Like they don't have a clear vision of what they're trying to accomplish. They don't have a metric that they're trying to move that helps them focus on something that they're creating. They don't have clear expectations about what needs to get done week by week. They don't give each other feedback on the work as it's progressing. And so for us, it's kind of going through that checklist of like, well, are all these things in place for the team to sort of have clarity in what they're trying to accomplish and holding each other accountable to that? And if that's not in place, then generally a team's going to struggle. We've also worked with teams in trying to figure out the, there's kind of no nice way of saying it, but like the impact of crappy leadership. And what I mean by that is you know, sometimes you work an organization that's big enough that you can't change the course of the ship. You know, it's too big. There's too much going on. And so there's all these things that you can't change that are always just crushing your team and not in a good way. And so what you do is you, you know, we've, we've worked with teams where you're just like, okay, so sit down with me and say, okay, at this point in the process, this is always happening. We tell them a bajillion times that we need eight and a half days to do this particular process. And then they throw stuff over at us and we have 48 hours to do it. This always happens. Okay, so stop advocating for change because the way that you're advocating for change is obviously not working. So sit down with me and tell me if you had this amount of time, what would change? What would the impact be? Six months from now, how much money would you save the company? How many, you know, what's, what do you theorize that the customer approval rate would increase or decrease by? Give me numbers to be able to work with because the priorities from different aspects of leadership are very different. So, Sometimes you have to put on that, you know, the sort of organizational development hat and say, okay, what's the data that's important to everybody else? Because you're making my life miserable is not a good enough metric for them. So putting it in terms of what's the actual impact? What are the numbers? What if my team had one more day or three more days? Or if we had this full amount of time? What do we think we could actually do? And and tracking it and presenting information that way you know, being a little more proactive in proving your point. Because otherwise, you know, it's, we all, even when conditions are terrible, we all still seem to be able to make stuff within that 48-hour window, you know? We keep delivering, we keep doing it, we keep, there's still products and services being made. There's all of these sacrifices being made. So clearly we have to figure out a different way to talk about changing the process. Yeah. Grab that as like, I was going to say, like you could describe this as the curse of being just good enough when you want it to be great. So like you're being, the organization's rewarding this, these teams for being, you know, barely or just good enough. And so a lot of, I feel like for designers, especially a lot of the design teams we work with, it's like we aspire to have great work. You know, like we're using that word, like we want this work to be really high quality. And in those kinds of scenarios, it's just, it's really hard for designers to feel like what they're providing is like the value that design can actually deliver. The problem is, here's my incredibly professional take on this one. The thing that sucks about it is that 
you can't really A-B test it, right? You know, you can't go, okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to bring all of design. We're going to have all of the great, fantastic early work that UX can contribute. We're going to do it the way that you want to do it. And we're going to run this and it's going to be nine months and it's going to be great. And then what we're going to do is we're going to run it again and we're not going to have you there. Like you can't A-B test it to see if it's going to work. You just kind of have to take it on faith. And faith is a hard sell. (laughs) I mean, what I was hearing you saying is that for an individual or a team that's having trouble with getting traction on changing the way they're doing things, if they want more collaboration, if they want to be brought into projects earlier, for example, that's a really common one, right, for both research and design, rather than just kind of like banging the same drum that they've been banging, which hasn't been, which is falling on deaf ears, you're saying change your tactic to talk in the terms of basically your client, right? You're the stakeholders that you're trying to collaborate with and showing them the value, the outcome of what, how the outcome would be different if there was more collaboration, earlier collaboration, that sort of thing. Totally. And I would say we're transitioning from, we want a seat at the table to, oh crap, I've got my seat at the table. So now I'm going to ask for design stuff. Like there's this funny cartoon floating around the internet right now. It shows like two frames. First frame is the designer saying, I want to see at the table. No, when they're at the table, all they have to say is design systems. <laughs> and everybody else at the table is, you know, sitting there thinking about what business decisions are we trying to make? And the designer is sort of advocating for what the designer wants or needs to reward sort of design. But how does something like that contribute to critical business decisions. I think we know that research can evidence things that really influence how a business thinks about what they're doing. And we know that going through the process of testing design and shipping design can influence outcomes businesses care about, like revenue and in the case of nonprofits, like impact. I think that we just haven't developed a strong enough vocabulary about what type of dialogue we're trying to influence when we're at that table and the outcomes that we want to like help foster for the organization and then reshape the way we talk about design to map to that. And I think this is one of those things where it's like, it's very contextual to every company. And so a lot of the folks that we work with or that approach us, they're often saying, you know, we want to be working in those earlier conversations. And, you know, it's very bespoke in figuring out like, well, what are the business decisions they're making? How are you contributing to them? Uh, How do you test different approaches if you don't get traction? And so it's kind of like the same problem over and over again, but it's very unique to each organizational culture and the people that you're working with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know that you guys are, we can talk about this a little bit more, but I know you're working on a book that kind of addresses, or you have finished a book that's coming out later this year about turning people into teams. And it's, I believe there's kind of an an idea or this approach to creating specific techniques that you believe help the teams that you've worked with or the organizations that you've worked with to create better teams. Yes. So the book's called Turning People into Teams, Rituals and Routines that Redesign How We Work. I'd say there's a couple of starting points for how the book came about. Mary and I started teaching team building for interaction design at a school in Denmark called Copenhagen Institute of Interaction Design and teaching students in a very team-oriented graduate program how to foreground how they work with cross-functional teams in doing really complex 
design projects. At the same time, when we started doing this business, both of us had worked on a toolkit for Frog called the Collective Action Toolkit. And that was all about how teams could come together and collectively solve problems. And the toolkit didn't have the word design in it. It was just oriented around team solving problems. And I think one of the things that was part of this that was new to the design space was there's a whole section of the toolkit about how to build a team. Previously, design toolkits had been focused on just doing design activities, but nobody had stopped and said, wait, well, we're bringing together a team. What are the things we need to do that helps these people work together better, then go focus on doing things like human-centered design? So after going through that and seeing the response of people using those tools in the wild, we realized that there's this like big open space where there were rituals that teams were using across different companies we were working with to solve for different problems that came up from the start to finish of projects. But there's no like beginning to end for someone who's a team leader or a team member to be like, oh, this situation has come up where we're misaligned on our expectations or we don't know what problem we're trying to solve or something's gone wrong and we don't know how to experiment our way to fix it with our team. Like they didn't have the tools in place to deal with it where the whole team would participate in fixing it. Usually it would be like a senior manager would say, just do this and not care about the consequences or the counter reaction from the team being frustrated that they couldn't fix their own problems. So because of a lot of those situations, the book is basically 30 rituals that teams use to collectively solve problems. And it's the stuff that happens from beginning to end over and over again across teams. And it's based on what we've seen and working across so many different kinds of teams and testing different rituals. And from us reading and reviewing a lot of literature in the teamwork space and realizing that there's a real gap from theories around how to make teams work better and there was no like practical tools to actually do it. So that's kind of like a high level summary. That's kind of like the thesis of the book. And I think when we were putting together what we did not want was we didn't want to just make a new team manifesto methodology rules book. We didn't want to contribute to that way of thinking, you know, that, oh, it, it has to be, oh, we do the Sherwin method, you know, it, and we do this and we do this and then we do this. We found that that kind of, you know, blind adherence to a particular methodology is really destructive for teams because, you know, it's kind of like loose pajamas. You need to be able to like move around, you know, you don't want it to feel like it's constricting who you are or where your team is going to go. So when we were doing the rituals and the routines for the book, we wanted it to be a little bit more like choreography. We're going to show you the steps to this particular move. How you put them together and how you make it for your team is up to you. And that sort of the central ethos of the book, I guess you could say, is that a team is a choice. And it's a choice that you make every single day and that each one of you has to make. And you make it every time you send an email or you're in a meeting, that it's a choice. And each of the routines that are in the book, the team gets to choose how they want to do it. And we thought that that was really important to maintain. Oh, that sounds like a fantastic book. I can't wait till it comes out. I am curious who you would say this book is for. Everyone! <laughs> uh, well, we would dream that it's relevant for anybody that's on a team. I think, and Mary and I go back and forth on this. I think we have different opinions. I'll, I'll share my opinion is that if you're somebody who's at a company or a nonprofit and you've just been promoted into a role where you have to lead a team. This is a book that we'd want you to read, especially if you're working in the nonprofit 
or in like a, a role that requires you to do a lot of community building across different functions in an organization, because those are the situations where you need sort of the rituals around how you engage everybody in conversation and then they are able to provide their input. And you need the ability to do it where you reduce the bias that comes with that type of situation where you want everybody to have their say, but you also want to make it clear that the team has to make these choices together and they have to be well-informed decisions and they have to be done with open communication practices, which when you see a lot of the research out there that people have been doing, it's really common sense. It's like everybody needs to be able to think about what they want to contribute without other people telling them in advance, like getting in the way of what they're thinking. They have to have some time alone to think about it. And when they share it, they need equal time. So all the rituals like kind of like bake in these sort of like rules to make sure that whenever you're in these situations, everybody's going to have a chance to contribute and be part of the choice that they need to make to move forward through something that's generally challenging for everybody. So it's a great kind of guidebook for people who are building teams. And I'm sure it's also a great guidebook for people who are looking to make change in their organization and their teams. Yeah, I would agree with that. There's a couple of rituals in the book that are exclusively focused on like making change with deliberate hypotheses. I think that's something where folks will say like, oh, we're going to change our team to be like this different structure, or we're going to like shift things around. It's like, well, what's your hypothesis of what that's going to do to the team? And like, what happens if it doesn't come true? How does how do you manage those change and think about it as like experiments rather than as just something that you do and then you just damn the consequences? It's really funny because it's like a lot of the people that we've worked with are product teams. They spend almost all of their time thinking about how to change the behavior of the customers that use their products. And yet they put little to no energy into using the same approaches to like change the behavior of their teams. So the book is us kind of like translating that effort that teams put into like the customer experience or the user experience or insert the name of whatever jargon you want for whatever they're doing around like customer centric stuff. And it's being like, now the team's the customer. How do we actually take that and think about ourselves and try to change our behavior, like, what does that look like? And the book is giving some of the activities and the structure to do that. My dream is that anybody who thinks that they might be doing a reorg reads this book first. <laughs> if I can save just one team from being reorged, then my mission will be complete. <laughs> or reorged in a better way. Yeah, the idea of being like, we want to change them something, but we don't know what we want to change into. So it's kind of like, we don't really know how are we going to recognize it when we get there? How will we know? And it's not to be like overly prescriptive about it. Like, oh, this was not the paradise I signed up for. But just to, to have, you know, something to look for. Yeah, that sounds really important. We don't have a bunch of time left, but I just want to make sure we get to this last part of this podcast called the mini mentoring brainstorm. Ooh, and, uh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> yes. I think it's funny because on your website, ask the Sherwins, you have the, your advice column. And this seems really similar to me where you're getting a question from someone and then, you know, you guys are coming up with your ideas for addressing the situation in your very clever and witty way. So <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> How you do on the fly, but <laughs> no pressure. Okay. Brain on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So here's the question. This is kind of a, a longer one. So we'll see if we can break this down. This is from a UX researcher. Her name is Petra. And she says, I work at a retail company that is both physical and online. 
we have multiple research teams with different focus, marketing research, CX research focused on stores and products, and UX research focused on digital. And there's never been much, if any, collaboration between the teams. We have a project that would really benefit from all the teams working together, but everyone I've reached out to on other teams says they're busy with different projects or they're working on isn't digital meaning my team. So we all have the same customer, so we should work on the customer experience together. Any ideas for other things I could try? And I see this as being, you know, it's kind of um, multi-layered because this is, sounds like multiple orgs. So even collaborating between teams in your same org, and sometimes I've seen that if you're trying to work with a team in a different org, each org kind of has their own like objectives, and they're supposed to all be under, you know, one company, big company objective, but but people sort of get caught up in their own monthly or quarterly objectives. And I totally see this. And I think my first reaction, and this is, you know, based on our experiences working with teams that are in kind of the retail space is that it seems like the folks that work across the organization haven't recognized the blurriness that now exists between the digital and the in-store touch points. I think it was like seven or eight years ago when we started to see people bringing mobile into the shopping experience. You'd see people come in and actually like check on Amazon to see whether the price was better on Amazon versus what they saw in the store. And then they'd like buy it on the spot in the store for their phone rather than getting it in the retail environment. That's how we've seen the retail environment fall apart. It seems like part of the solution here is to evidence or share some stories where it's really clear that there's shared benefits of having the digital and the physical being part of some journeys that are like what the customers of their organization are having at the same time. So let's say hypothetically, this person was working at Nordstrom. It's a matter of like, well, where are situations where the digital is actually crossing over into the physical or the physical is crossing over into the digital and the purchasing decision is actually moved to a different place that we hadn't considered. And sometimes the purchasing decision actually happens after they've received the clothes having shipped, brought home, and then they bring it back into the store to then buy a new thing, ideally, to replace whatever it was. You have to figure out, like, where that overlap is and how, like, it can, in the end, benefit the organization with purchase of something that a person loves. Yeah, I mean, it's retail in particular. You know, retail is not your neighbor's fruit tree, you know, where it's like, if your neighbor has an apple tree, but it grows over your property, it's their problem. But if an apple falls off into your yard, then you can take it. It's like, oh, well, until I have to worry about them buying something, then it's digital's problem. It's not digital's problem until we XYZ happens. It's like retail's not a fruit tree. And I think what happens is that, you know, we lose sight of the fact that our customers don't think about it that way, so neither should we. But to step a little further to the to a, a really tactical way of thinking about it is the we don't have enough time, we're too busy. How much time does Petra need from each person? What are if she asked, so how much time do you think this would that I'm asking of you? Because it would be interesting to know what their impression of time is, how long they think that something is going to be with no other real information. Because there may be a mismatch of how much time they do or do not have. And that's not to say that, you know, like, oh, I'm billing seven and a half hours. Well, you've got 30 more minutes you can give to me. It's not like that. It's more about the perception of how much time things cost now, as opposed to how much time it's going to cost 
if this doesn't get done later. And it's hard to think about that, you know, really, really tangibly, but it is a conversation that this should be happening. What kind of benefit are we looking for? What do we think the, we know it's going to be beneficial because, you know, it's supposed to be beneficial, but yet again, something that's difficult to A-B test. If we know if it's going to be beneficial, what benefits are we looking for? How can this person contribute? What do we think that their time cost is going to be? What do we think their time save is going to be on the end? Really, really tactical questions. They sound boring and they sound gross, but I think part of it is learning. We know the language of design, but we can also translate that into a million other languages. It's, you know, to bring it back to cake, it's like we know the word cake in like 50 different languages and it's still cake. So the ability to translate our impact and our effect and our concepts of time and saving and what are business problems versus what are customer problems. I think flexing that way of talking also, it really, it's really you holding out your hand for a handshake, you know, of being like, I am ready to speak your language and to see how all of these pieces fit together. The digital is not, you know, that fruit tree over there behind the fence, that it's actually this whole yard because that's how it's perceived by the customer. <laughs> yeah, I love your metaphors. They're fantastically just, you know, it tells the story. I was actually envisioning the tree in my neighbor's yard (laughs) (laughs) whose leaves fall on my lawn all year long. I would rather have apples, personally, but... Okay, so that is fantastic advice that you guys have here for Petra. What and I think it actually really kind of puts everything we've been talking about today in some very kind of concrete terms. So one thing that she could do is to create her story of specifically probably for this project that she wants their help on, showing that the crossover that is happening in that project, like probably in a some sort of a visual way, showing how that would happen. And so kind of showing them visually where their expertise would be helpful and where their customer is actually her customer. You know, it's all the same customer. And the clarity around that of being like, we always do it where it's, it would really help me out if you did X. I'm like, nobody needs to help me, right? There's no <laughs> impetus to help me. But it's almost the, it sounds a little slimy, but it's kind of like, let me help you help you. So it's kind of like the benefit of you helping me is actually something that benefits you, not just something that benefits me. And it shows really just like a next level of thinking of being like, okay, I am thinking about the impact of what I do on all of the org. I'm thinking about how these things work together, not just how you solve my problem for, yay, the benefit of the customer, which we frequently, you know, cudgel other groups with, you know, it's for the good of the customer, we should do it. And it's hard to say no without looking like a jerk, right? But if we have this of being like, I'm welcoming your expertise, because it also benefits you, I think that's a good tactic. Yeah. And then the other two things that you mentioned, I kind of see them as two separate things, Mary, but telling her specific, like quantifying her ask of how much time, like kind of more specifically, how much time is this, is she asking for? Is it just a one hour meeting? Is it like one hour every week? Yeah. What's the ongoing? And then also talking about the benefit, like when she asks, makes her ask, she needs to specify the benefit that's going to come from their involvement. 
in their time that, that she's asking for, right? We've told some teams, and this has actually come from our own professional experience before we started the company, of being like, every time you have a meeting, you say, okay, this meeting will be successful if this, this, and this are the outcomes. And this meeting is scheduled to last 45 minutes, and we'll do a check-in halfway through to make sure we're meeting those goals. And if not, that we need to you know, change direction to respect everybody's time. So that if you're saying like, okay, I need an hour every week, then when you have that hour, you know what you want to accomplish, you know what's coming in, you know what's probably going to come out. And it's not to be, you know, overly prescriptive and, you know, to be a you know, a, a small yippy dog about it. Like, can I, I need 47 minutes, but to really show that you are thinking about the impact. Well, and to show that you're, that you are thinking about it beforehand, like, you know, like that you're thinking about what the meeting is. You're not just sort of getting people in a room and wanting them to kind of, like you said, figure out my problem for me. Yeah. I think that's really good. Well, I hope that I think Petra has some really good ideas here. So and I think that scenario that she's telling is sounds pretty familiar to me. So I think this is an approach that would work for a lot of people on many different types of teams. Excellent. I fingers crossed that it helps. <laughs> Ditto. We'd like to hear it remember if it has worked out. Yeah, absolutely. So lastly, for anyone listening who wants to learn more techniques for creating more collaboration or building better teams, I'm curious, what are some resources you would recommend? Well, we, Mary, do you want to talk about team words? I can talk about team words real quick. I say real quick, and I really don't talk about anything real quick, but we developed a product called Team Words, which is sort of getting away from the obnoxious, abstract, we want teams to be creative and collaborative and unicorns, and to really start talking about what those words mean and how behaviors that we do when we interact with each other, how those behaviors reinforce those words, those abstract words, so that if we say, like, we really want to be more professional, what does that mean? What does it look like? When I'm in the office, do I see it? Do I hear it? And if I don't, what do I want to see instead? Because what happens is we have these idealized abstract words, and when they aren't being met is usually when they become weapons. You know, we don't sit around and talk about, you know, I really love working with you. You know, we just have a great amount of respect for each other. It's usually, you know, I got, came out of that meeting and I got to tell you, you like, you clearly don't respect me. What's respect look like? And the teams that we've been working with are from different backgrounds. They're from different countries. They're from different economic backgrounds. They're, they speak so many different languages and they have so many different ways of being in a professional environment that we really don't talk about it. We just, you know, throw words at each other and hope that that's going to fix the problem. And we also tell people what not to do rather than asking them what we do want them to do. And so TeamWords is a product that we came up with to sort of facilitate that dialogue of getting people to really rally around this team idea of what of a shared behavior, of shared norms that really include everyone rather than being like something you have to be indoctrinated into. It's like a little deck of cards, right? It so is. it looks kind of fun as long as you don't start throwing them at people like you would throw words at people, I guess. <laughs> 
That could be a new use case we had not considered. It's edge like cases a, for the ed- win. Edge cases for the win is that you throw the card at the person that you think means what they are. Whatever. <laughs> Maybe that's not a good idea. Um, so I'd say other resources that we haven't created. We're big fans of this book called Thanks for the Feedback. I don't know if you've seen it, but when we do coach or work with designers, you know, designers are saying like, you know, I want to be part of critical conversations or strategic conversations. I want to build stronger relationships with our stakeholders. It's like, well, you may be approaching those meetings with intention, but you're going to get a lot of feedback in those meetings. And that book gives you like a whole library of techniques to use to better receive feedback, interpret and understand it and use it to adjust how you behave and the things that you do in your job and in life. And I've seen that book transform some people's lives, including our own, by putting some of those tools into practice on like a daily basis. It really does influence the way you build relationships with people in an organization and the way that you take what they share with you and find like the relevant good information that's needed to just do your job better. I love that. I mean, I think feedback is so important and I haven't read that book. So that's a great recommendation. It's a great book. It really is. Okay. And I've got lots of notes here for the show notes page. So (laughs) these things will be on the show notes page, but okay. This is very, actually, lastly, what are the ways that we can hear more from you or get in touch with the Sherwins? We have a mailing list in which we share each month our advice column, and then we send regular updates on our writing and speaking. We have some upcoming speaking and training that we're doing in Tokyo, Dubai, Boston, London. So it's a good way to keep up with sort of like where we're going to be around the world. And then in in October, when the book comes out, you'll be able to get first crack at that, plus some special goodies that are going to just be for people on the mailing list. And it's worth mentioning, there's one thing about the advice column that I think is unique is in that it's only an internet for a month at a time. So it's kind of like you either read it or lose it each month. So it's kind of like when you go on Instagram and somebody's like, hey, here's like the five photographs of what's going on in my life at this moment. That's how it is with the advice that we put up on the internet. Yeah. And that's asktheSherwins.com. Yep. Absolutely. And our we're Ask the Sherwins because our students actually came up with the name of our company. You know, they were, whenever they would have a question, one of them would be like, oh, we should just ask the Sherwins. Okay. You know, that's the answer. So the advice column sort of naturally flowed from that. And we have had people being like, oh, hey, I'm looking for the advice column that you had on on drinking or the advice column you had on quitting your job. Or I'm like, okay, I'll send it to you, but it's not online anymore. You know, we're trying to, we want to create that sort of like, you know, how people used to collect old issues of, you know, sassy magazine or, you know, type magazines and stuff like that. We're trying to create a little cult following around it. (laughs) Yeah, I have to admit, I was looking for the archive myself. (laughs) (laughs) And then I was like, wait, there's only one. Okay. Well, what is great about that is you're going to have another book already written. Yeah, actually, that's true. That is, you're not the fourth person that has said, so wait, does this mean that the next book is a book of advice columns? It's like, hmm. (laughs) Yes. All right, David and Mary, thank you so much for your time. This was a lot of fun. And I would love to have you on again after your book comes out. And we can talk about it a little bit more. That would be great. Yeah, it'll be out in October. So we'll definitely make sure we're free for you. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Okay. And there you have it. 
I just love talking to the Sherwins. They are so brilliant, aren't they? I hope that you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And we'll see you next week on UX Cake. Yes, collaborating across teams can be hard. And it doesn't happen without intention. But the benefits for your product can be like the difference between a beautiful chocolate souffle and just a mess on your kitchen counter. (laughs) I just had to get something in about cake. I don't know if you've ever made souffle. It's actually really difficult. But so is collaborating across teams. So there you go. If you enjoyed this episode of UX Cake, please share it with your friends. There is always enough UX Cake to go around. Connect with UX Cake on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or on our website at uxcake.co. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a bite.